Will you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16? Lord willing, over the next couple of Sundays, we will finish up this epistle and then we will embark upon 2 Corinthians. But this morning, we're going to look at verses 5 through 12 of 1 Corinthians 16. And I've entitled my discourse to you, Marks of a Dedicated Servant. So follow along as I read 1 Corinthians 16, beginning in verse 5. But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you, or even spend the winter, so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Now, if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work, as I also am. So let no one despise him but send him on his way in peace so that he may come to me for I expect him with the brethren. But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren and it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. We come now to the last chapter in Paul's epistle to the Corinthians an epistle that has been largely corrective, especially given the worldliness and the immaturity that characterized that church. And while these verses before us seem rather inconsequential in that they are basically describing Paul's travel plans, upon close inspection, we can unearth some hidden jewels of practical wisdom. You might say the gold, silver, and precious stone of Christian ministry, of spiritual service, the kind of service that is, that is worthy of reward, as we would read, for example, in 1 Corinthians 3. In fact, in that text, we learn that some of our works will have lasting value and will endure the testing fire of divine judgment, and some of our works won't. God-centered service offered in the strength of the Holy Spirit and motivated by the glory of God will be of great value, but man-centered service offered in the flesh for the glory of man will be of no value. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 3.13, Paul writes, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of of each man's work. We all know that fire is used to purify metal, and it is used often in Scripture, for example, in this particular text, as a symbol of testing. And so what he's saying is what God uses to test the purity and the value of our service to him will be like fire. He will determine the motivations of our ministry. So, Indeed, as we come to this text, we are going to see the marks of a dedicated servant. 
And if we synthesize the essence of New Testament service to Christ, we can very quickly see that it falls under basically two fundamental categories. We are to be all about evangelizing and edifying. Very simple. Edification, by the way, is a term you don't hear that often, but it means building up others in the faith. For example, 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Therefore, encourage one another and build up, that's the term, build up one another just as you are also doing. Romans 14, verse 19, Pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Romans 15, 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to his edification, for even Christ did not please himself. So I trust this is your mindset. Now, mind you, as we look at scripture, we see that this takes place through the ministry of the word of God. You will recall the Great Commission. We're to go and to make disciples. We're to teach others to observe. We're to teach and to apply the things that Christ has commanded. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26, we read, Let all things be done for edification. By the way, that includes the one anothering commands in Scripture, in New Testament. You think, well, you know, really, what would edification look like in my life? Well, let me read these to you. I won't give you all of the references, but we are to love one another, live in harmony with one another, welcome one another, admonish one another, care for one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens of sin, be patient with one another, be kind to one another, forgive one another, sing praises with one another, regard one another as more important than oneself, speak truth to one another, encourage one another, seek good for one another, stir up one another to love and good deeds, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another, be hospitable to one another, be humble toward one another. Get the idea? That's edification. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people ask me how they can find God's will for their life, especially young people, you know, as if it's some kind of a secret, you know, that, that God hides it and he expects us to go on this Easter egg hunt to find the will, you know, warmer, warmer, colder, colder, warmer, you know, that type of thing. And that's obviously not at all the way it works. In fact, the fundamentals of God's will can be clearly seen in Scripture. It's articulated all over the place. Let me give you a few examples. First Thessalonians 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God. That's a good way to start, right? For this is the will of God, your sanctification, meaning to be set apart, to be made holy. And he says, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion. You want to know the will of God? Why don't you start there? How are you doing with that? Let me give you another one. In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Well, I could give you hundreds of passages, but suffice it to say that the will of God is revealed all through Scripture, and it comes much under this category of edification. So we We start there. By the way, I love the way Augustine put it with respect to answering the question, how do I know the will of God? And the answer was real simple. Love God and do what you want. Love God 
And that's a big statement, right? Love God and do what you want. So when it comes to serving Christ, which is to be the ultimate priority of our life, I find it very helpful to know that everything we do needs to fall under the category of evangelism and edification. And we see this very clearly in the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. And I would have us focus on three marks of a dedicated servant that I believe emerge from this text. Number one, you're going to see that a dedicated servant has a passionate zeal for, you guessed it, evangelism and edification. Secondly, a resolute determination to stand firm in the face of opposition. And thirdly, a humble willingness to co-labor with others as the Spirit leads. And I trust you will join me in allowing the light of truth to shine upon your life and to basically humble yourself before it. Whenever we do this, the Spirit of God, I find, is so gentle in exposing those areas that will grieve him and will forfeit blessing in our life. Now, let me give you the context again here a little bit. Um, Paul is writing from Ephesus on his third missionary journey. Uh, He has been in Ephesus for three years. I read some of this in Acts 20 a little bit ago. Uh, And he's giving this epistle now uh, to, uh, to Timothy to deliver to them. And he intended to remain in Ephesus Uh, until Pentecost, which would have been May, June, and then to winter in Corinth. And there's, that's very important to bear in mind. Um, travel was very difficult in the winter, uh, especially at sea. And it was about 200 miles across the Aegean Sea from, from Ephesus to Corinth. So Paul reveals here his, his personal ministry and travel plans. And you will recall, uh, that in verses 1 through 5, he gives the Corinthians uh, directions as to the collection for uh, the Judean saints in Jerusalem. And then he proceeds saying, verse 5, but I will come to you after I go through Macedonia. Now, Macedonia is a, or, or well, it still is, but in that day, he's referring to uh, a region of northern Greece. It was about 300 miles north of Corinth, and it, by the way, included the cities of, um, of Philippi, of Thessalonica, and Berea. He goes on to say, for I am going through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I go. Folks, I would submit to you as we look at this passage that the first mark of a dedicated servant is a passionate zeal for evangelism and edification. You say, well, how do you see that here? Well, it's quite simple. Can you imagine the enormous effort, the enormous amount of energy that he expended to travel to these regions for this very purpose? In fact, Paul stated that the purpose of his second missionary journey in Acts 15.36 was to, quote, visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. In other words, I want to go to every one of these places to make sure that they're growing in Christ. It's estimated that Paul traveled 10,000 miles by foot on his missionary journeys. That's equivalent of walking to and from New York to 
Los Angeles nearly four times. Can you imagine that? And if you travel by foot, we can walk about 12 miles a day if it's on a nice flat surface. And most of where he walked wasn't that way. Uh, you say, well, he might ride a horse. Well, I, I know what it is to be on a horse all day long. Um, you can ride a horse maybe 26 miles a day if you're clipping along pretty good. Uh, but chances are he didn't have a horse. You say, well, maybe he rode a donkey. Folks, you don't want to ride a donkey, trust me. You can walk, a donkey walks five miles a day. We can walk 12. And donkeys are very uncomfortable and they are humiliating to ride, believe me. Now, as you think about the Apostle Paul, there couldn't have been an ounce of fat on this guy. He had to have had enormous endurance, thick calluses on his feet, a very tough man physically, emotionally, certainly spiritually. He slept on the ground most of the time. He would have to carry food and water with him. Much of the regions that he traversed was hot, arid, dry desert regions, and then other places we know that he, where he went, it, it was cold, it was rocky, it was snowy, mountainous regions, swollen streams and rivers. And bear in mind now, there's no Hampton Inn, there's no Waffle House, there's no Cracker Barrel. And when you could find one, there were some public inns, but public inns and innkeepers had a horrible reputation. Typically, it was a barn structure to uh, accommodate large caravans. So most of the time, the Apostle Paul slept out under the stars, along with, with Silas and Timothy and whoever would be with him. And sometimes they would stay in the extra rooms of other believers that they, that they knew. Uh, as I was thinking about it, Paul's first missionary journey we know, was extremely difficult. Everywhere he went, he was met with increased hostility, with opposition. Uh, he had been stoned and left for dead at Lystra. That would be enough right there for most people to say, that's it, I'm going to find another job. Likewise, on his second missionary journey, he endured the same kind of treatment, suffered the same type of things. In 1 Corinthians, he describes himself as being poorly clothed, roughly treated, and homeless. Uh, and he said he, that he was considered to be the scum of the world, the dregs of all things. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23 and following, you remember that the context there is Paul is discrediting false teachers who had invaded the church and they were slandering him. And, and he's basically saying, look, these, these characters have never suffered a day for the cause of Christ. They're servants of Satan. And in that text, he says, are they servants of Christ? And then he says, I speak as if insane. By the way, Paul despised self-commendation, but the Corinthians had really pushed him into that because they were giving an ear to these false teachers, and he was forced to, to make his case. So he says, I'm more so than, than these characters in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beating times without number, and often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. I mean, folks, his back had to have looked like spaghetti. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. 
I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers from false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. And that concern falls under the heading of edification. By the way, after Paul went to Corinth, we know that he traveled to Macedonia on foot. That would have been a three-week walk, 363 miles from Corinth to Thessalonica. And that's if he walked 20 miles per day. Furthermore, since he arrived, we know, in, in mid-July in A.D. 54, that would have meant that he would have traveled the great plain of, of Thessaly in the summer. And that's one of the hottest regions in all of Europe. So it gives you a little sense of what he endured for the cause of Christ. Imagine this. Now, he, he spends his life walking, traveling, he spent countless hours proclaiming the gospel under, under hostile circumstances, teaching, answering questions to, to hostile cl- crowds, countless hours strengthening others. And he had to deal with all of this conflict, all of this opposition. He was falsely accused and flogged, thrown into prison. I, I was thinking about this. I, I went through some of the history in my mind. He was run out of Philippi. And then remember, he had to flee after about three weeks from Thessalonica. He goes to Berea. Remember how he was mocked in Athens and only a few people believed. And and then he traveled 50 miles from Athens to Corinth, which was one of the most wicked cities in the history of the world. And, and, And at first, by the way, he was all alone. No one knew him. Imagine that. Silas and Timothy remained in Macedonia during that time to disciple the new believers. He, he was always in need of funds. He lacked funds. He, he, he would try to support himself by making tents. Later in 2 Corinthians, he writes that, that he tried not to be a burden to the saints there, and eventually the very poor Macedonians sent some supplies to help him with his needs. Like Jesus, he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And folks, there are other servants of Christ, men and women all over the world today that are the same way. I I, want to say this kindly, but we live in a very unrealistic bubble here in this church in Middle Tennessee. Jesus said, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. By the way, as a contrast, compare this to the net worth of some of the richest so-called pastors in America. And I would submit to you that none of these people know, understand the gospel. They're all false teachers. Kenneth Copeland, net worth $300 million. Pat Robertson, $100 million. Benny Hinn, $60 million. Joel Osteen, $40 million. Creflo Dollar, $27 million. Rick Warren, $25 million. T.D. Jakes, $18 million. Joyce Meyer, $8 million. And on it goes. Now, what is it that drove a man like the Apostle Paul? 
Well, obviously, it was his love for Christ and a desire to live for his glory, but he was consumed. He was passionate. He had a zeal for evangelism and for edification. He wanted to see people saved and grow in Christ. He was also very concerned about the relationships between uh, the, the, the Gentile saints that had come to Christ and, <coughs> excuse me, and the, and the Jewish saints so that they could all get along. <coughs> so this required him to plan. It required him to organize, to prioritize his time, uh, to, to exert all his physical and financial resources to accomplish the, the twofold mission of evangelism and edification. Paul addressed this issue, by the way, uh, when he said to the Ephesians something that he undoubtedly had said many times before in Ephesians 5.16, he says this, and, and I, I remind myself, this is one of those verses that I, that I have there on my, I've got these monitors, you know how it works. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time. Folks, I would humbly ask you, to what extent do you devote your life to sharing Christ and to seeing others grow, to, being, to see them built up in him? Or is this even on your radar? If not, why not? There's something wrong. Speaking in this regard, in light of the hope of the resurrection, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. And indeed, folks, every effort that we make to serve Christ, every sacrifice that we offer to him will be rewarded. Nothing we do in his name will be done in vain. But may I also encourage you when you think about this, whatever you do for Christ, do the very best you can. I get so tired of Christian teachers and Christian pastors and Christian musicians and Christian movies that they're, they're mediocre at best. Ministry is serious business. The souls of men and women are at stake. It, it's hard work. But think about it. It's all for the glory of Christ who gave himself for us. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. As I was meditating on this very concept, I, I, my mind went to Colossians 3. And there we get a keen sense of this very thing in Paul's admonition to, to slaves who had come to faith in Christ. And obviously... They had a duty to their master. And, and by the way, this has parallels for all of us uh, with employee, employer, relationships, or whatever. And he's wanting us to do everything for the glory of Christ. Now, obviously, slaves struggled with a lack of motivation. It was natural for many of them to do their duties with a sense of, of resentment, with a lack of enthusiasm, and with a lack of energy. And we've all been around people like that before, that, that they, they do as little as they can possibly do and get away with it. And, and what they do, they do poorly. And that's just a poor testimony. So Paul says this in Colossians 3, verse 23, Whatever you do, 
do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Heartily, by the way, means literally with all your heart, with with all of your being, with all the life force that you have that drives you. That's the idea of the term that is used there. And then he goes on to say, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. So, folks, give of your very best in whatever you do. If you're teaching Sunday school class, you're working in the nursery, you're preparing food in the kitchen, you're cleaning the church, whatever you're doing, we do it all for the glory of Christ. There's no place for laziness. There's no place for mediocrity in the Lord's work. Whatever you do, do it with all of your heart. I remember as a young pastor, I had an old Southern Baptist preacher um, tell me that, you know, Dave, as, as I get to know you, you, you spend way too much time preparing sermons and, and you, you preach way too long. There's probably some truth to the latter. I don't know about the former. But he quipped, and I'll never forget this. He said, look, you just need to let the Holy Spirit lead you. Most of the time, I prepare my sermons between the special music and the offering. And by the way, if you ever heard him preach, you would know that he was not lying. (laughs) He had kind of the typical one, two, three method of preaching. One verse, two jokes, three stories, and an altar call. I was talking with Nancy about this just this morning. You know, it's funny how when you study scripture, you, you remember songs that you've sung. And by the way, that, that's the perfect, per, per, that's the purpose of our music. It's, it's didactic. And it, it helps us recall the great truths of, of the word of God. And I said, honey, do you remember when, when we used to sing, give of your best to the master? Boom, she takes off and sings the whole verse. I can't do that. She has an amazing mind for that type of thing. I remembered some of it, but we were just doing that this morning. But when we were children at Bethany Baptist Church in Moline, Illinois, we used to sing this song. Let me just give you just the first, first verse. Give of your best to the master. Give of the strength of your youth. Throw your soul's fresh glowing ardor into the battle for truth. Jesus has set the example. Dauntless was he, young and brave. Give him your loyal devotion. Give him the best that you have. Any of you ever sing that before? Oh, boy, that's the, there's only a few of us. But, but that's the spirit, right? John MacArthur says this, Becoming a faithful servant of the Lord does not begin with some great opportunity but with doing the best possible work for him in the routine things. If we do not give God our best where we are, there is no assurance we will give him our best anywhere else. The only opportunity we can be sure of having is the one we have now. Amen to that. Jesus said in Luke 16, 10, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much, and he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Well, back to the text again. Verse 5, I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter. Now, here we see he's obviously aware that, that yes, he's making plans, but he knows that, that 
ultimately the Lord is in control. There's always things that are going to happen. Uh, they make, you have to be flexible. You have to be patient. The end of verse six, he says, so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. Uh, the, the Greek verb translated send me on my way is also used in, in another grammatical form in Second Corinthians one sixteen, and it carries the idea of helping someone with the necessary supplies, food, money, and even companions to make a journey. So he needed their support to carry on the work of the ministry. Verse 7, for I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. You see, folks, here we see that pastoral ministry, once again, it's more than just evangelism. That's the frustrating thing about these, these evangelistic crusades. I'm not saying they're all wrong, but, but it's so much more than just seeing people come to Christ. You have to disciple them to help them grow in Christ. Paul is not interested in some kind of, you know, float in, float out, superficial grip and grin, uh, you know, casual visit. I mean, edification requires personal involvement. It requires face-to-face, one-on-one discipleship and counseling. A true shepherd must smell like the sheep. In Acts 20 and verse 20 that we read earlier, Paul reminded the elders at Ephesus, quote, I I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. By the way, this is why I am very opposed to satellite churches where the lead pastor is merely a face on a screen, kind of the celebrity preacher mentality, preaching that typically ends up glorifying the preacher rather than glorifying Christ. Preaching turns into entertainment. You see, preaching off location is not a New Testament model. And it's not just because they didn't have the technology to do it, which is true. They obviously didn't. It's impossible for a shepherd or for elders to know their congregation unless they spend time with them. Plus, they need to observe the pastor, right? They need to observe the pastor's family. Unfortunately, you you live in that kind of a bubble, but that's important. Because frankly, in many cases, more is caught than taught. People see things modeled. That's important. And Paul understands this. You see, a a true shepherd is not only going to be available to his flock. He's going to watch over them. He's going to go to them if necessary. There's a bond that develops between a shepherd and, and, and his flock. And this can't happen if a pastor doesn't know your name. I recall how Paul and Silas and Timothy saw many come to faith in Christ in a matter of a few weeks in Thessalonica. You remember that great story? And, and, and as a result of that, you also recall that the Jews ran them out of town. They were running for their life. But, but we see their passion and they're, they're just their passion for intentional fellowship, for the one anothering, to see people built up in Christ. When Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 3.10, he says, We night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face. By the way, that's not FaceTime. That's not Skype. All right? That's face-to-face. 
that we might see your face, and here's why, and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Folks, this is the heartbeat of a true shepherd. And we all need to be about the same things. So he says, I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. But, verse 8, I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. This leads me to my second observation with respect to the marks of a dedicated servant. Not only do Does that person have a passionate zeal for evangelism and edification? But secondly, they will have a resolute determination to stand firm in the face of opposition. He talks about these many adversaries. He's going to stay there. There's a battle here. I'm I'm not going to cut and run. I'm going to stay here until we get this thing under control. And we get a sense of Paul's many adversaries in Ephesus, when we read Luke's account of what happened when he first arrived. If, if you go to Acts, you, you see that Ephesus was, was, was an exceedingly wicked city. It was the home of the, the magnificent temple of, of Diana. Um, ritual prostitution and all manner of sexual perversion was an integral part of their worship. They, uh, Diana was also known as, as Artemis, um, the daughter of Zeus, the, the twin sister of Apollos, um, a fertility idol. In Acts 19.13, we read how even Jewish exorcists were trying to cast out evil spirits in the name of Jesus, like they saw Paul doing. And uh, it says in verse 14, seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. So that, that was, that's what was going on there. And many of these magicians, as you will recall, and the, and the account there in, in Acts, uh, burned their books that contained all of their magical spells in the sight of everyone, the text says. By the way, it, it says that it was, those books were valued at 50,000 pieces of silver in verse 19 of Acts 19. Uh, 50,000, do you realize how much that is, a piece of silver? That was like 50,000 days wages of a common laborer. Enormous amount of money. So you can see what was going on there. Verse 20, so the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Well, whenever the word of the Lord is growing mightily and prevailing, guess what else is going to happen? That is a rallying cry for Satan and his minions and those that serve him. And later Paul described the kind of opposition they endured. We read about it in 2 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 8. He says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope. And he will yet deliver us. So many wolves had to be driven away in Ephesus. And, but Paul was not going to leave his flock unprotected. Beloved, once again, you've heard me say this so many times. Ministry is war. And if you don't see it that way, if you don't see yourself as a soldier of the cross, you're in trouble. By the way, I, I'm not talking about... Disneyland churchianity, okay? That's not ministry. 
I'm not talking about cultural Christianity. I'm talking about invade the kingdom of darkness with a sort of truth kind of Christianity that ticks people off. Not that you mean to, but that's what's going to happen. The kind of Christianity that Satan in the world despises. Therefore, one of the marks of a dedicated servant of Christ will be a resolute determination to stand firm in the face of opposition. Second Corinthians four and verse eight, Paul says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body, the dying of Jesus So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So the church at Ephesus was being attacked from the outside as well as from the inside. They had factious heretics rising up from within them. And Paul knew that he had to stay long enough to protect them and to bolster their defenses. By, by the way, the elders here at Calvary Bible Church, and, and I know all, so many of you are always on guard for these same kinds of people. And, and Jude tells us in Jude 3, it's for this reason that we have to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In other words, to fight for the truth of Scripture. Every year there's going to be those that show up here, like, like many other Bible teaching churches, they're going to hear truths that contradict their, their unbiblical beliefs and behaviors. And as a result, they're going to be horribly offended. And then typically the way it works is they, they viciously criticize the church, um, especially me. And, um, and then they disappear and they know that their heresies and their behaviors aren't going to be tolerated. So we have to all be on guard for unproven people. First Timothy five twenty four, Paul says, The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. So indeed, truth and time walk hand in hand, but we have to be wary. And I'm so thankful for... So many of you people that have good, solid biblical discernment, and you deal with things that I never even knew needed dealt with. It's probably bad grammar, but I think you understand what I'm trying to say. There's virtually no chance, and I say this, give God the glory for this, but there's virtually no chance that some wolf will last very long in this congregation. So Paul and Timothy constantly had to deal with these issues. But what we see here in this text is Paul had a resolute determination to stand firm in the face of opposition. And finally, a dedicated servant will have a humble willingness to co-labor with others as the Spirit leads. Notice verse 10. Now, if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work as I also am. Now, historically, we know from other passages that um, that, that, that Paul had sent Timothy and, and uh, Erastus to Macedonia. 
Again, you read about that in Acts 19, and now he's sending Timothy and maybe even Erastus with him uh, to Corinth, most likely to give them this epistle that we are studying here. But Paul knew about Timothy's timid disposition. We studied this not too long ago. He also knew that he was a young man. And Paul Paul also knew that there were arrogant, intimidating know-it-alls in the church there in Corinth, that could easily overpower a young, timid man like Timothy. And so he was concerned. By the way, it was a concern that was well justified, as Scripture indicates. So to be sure, pastoral ministry, it's not for wilting lilies. <laughs> and you, you have to be strong and courageous because the, there's always going to be controlling, overbearing, factious people in a church. And some people literally see their their spiritual gift as policing the pastor, for example. In fact, I had a guy in leadership here years ago um, at Calvary Bible Church tell me that um, that that he felt that that was his calling to police the pastor. In fact, he had the nickname Barney Fife. You know, you remember Barney and Andy of Mayberry? He had a bullet and a badge and a little black book, and everybody's in jail all the time. Well, that was kind of the way it worked here. Some of you remember some of that, some of you that have been here for a long time. Uh, by God's grace, the Lord quickly removed him, and, and I believe now he's on his third or fourth church where he has an opportunity to exercise his gift. So Paul tells them to go easy on his co-laborer. Go easy on him. And, and we can see here in this account that, that throughout Paul's ministry life, we see him working closely with other people like Timothy. For example, he worked with Epaphroditus. Who, he was a, a teammate uh, of Paul's who he described in Philippians 2.25 as my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier who is also your messenger and minister to my need. Remember, he worked closely with John Mark. They had struggles at first. They reconciled, and then they worked closely together. John Mark became a beloved friend whom he considered especially, quote, useful to me for service, 2 Timothy 4.11. Um, he also described the runaway slave, Onesimus, uh, in similar fashion, talking about how, how he was, quote, useful to me in Philemon 12. And I'm so thankful for the team that God has assembled here at Calvary Bible Church. And most of you are part of that. I mean, we all do various things, but it's just amazing to see how we can all work together and use our gifts in in ways that are are for the purpose of edifying the body and evangelism. And I'm so thankful for that. And then he says in verse 11, so let no one despise him. Referring to Timothy, the, the term despise is really strong in the Greek. It means utterly disdain. Don't want that. It means to treat someone with contempt as if they're totally worthless. I don't want you to do that, guys. It's kind of like Paul saying, and I, I know what some of you are like. So when he comes, don't you dare treat him that way. Evidently, in light of verse 12, they also held Apollos in high esteem, and they had probably asked him to come visit. They were hoping he would come. So when Timothy shows up and and not Apollos, probably Paul was afraid that the troublemakers would would give him a hard time. And um, by the way, when you read these things, you really get a sense of, of what ministry is all about, don't you? 
I mean, we could all, we could all kind of put ourselves in these situations. I mean, this is, there's just endless opportunities for conflict in a church. All right. We all have different preferences, different ideas, different personalities, and we're all sinful. <laughs> Boy, what a mess. Great opportunities for conflict, but also great opportunities for forgiveness, for love, for reconciliation. He says, but send him on his way in peace so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. In other words, he wanted some of the brothers to accompany him uh, so he wouldn't be alone when he returned. And then verse 12, but concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren. And it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. Um, Evidently, from the original letter that they received, that Paul received, they they must have indicated that they wanted Apollos to come. But uh, according to Acts 18, verses 24 through 28, uh, Paul really wanted um, uh, them to accompany uh, Timothy and Erastus to to Corinth, but for undisclosed reasons, uh, wanted Apollos to accompany them, but for undisclosed reasons, Apollos believed that he needed to stay in Ephesus. So Paul respected that decision. So bottom line, Paul was not a one-man band. Despite all of his gifts, Despite his superior intellect, he was a man that knew that he didn't have all of the gifts. And in order to be effective for Christ, he had to work as a team with others. Well, in closing this morning, I I would challenge you to ask yourself, do I have a passionate zeal for evangelism and edification? Is that really part of who I am? Do I have a resolute determination to stand firm in the face of opposition? Or do I run for cover at the first sign of opposition? And do I have a humble willingness to co-labor with others as the Spirit leads, knowing that I don't have all the answers, I don't have all the gifts? And folks, if the answer to these questions is no, then you're never going to be effective in your ministry to Christ. Because these are the marks of a dedicated servant. And finally, I just want to close with this. Especially you young people, young men and women. Have you ever considered serving Christ vocationally? Have you ever thought about going into the mission field? Maybe some of you young men going into the pastorate. You know, Jesus said that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And may I encourage you to just ask yourself, you know, is this something that maybe I need to consider? And the reason I say this is because somebody said that to me when I was a little boy and said it many times after that. And the Spirit of God used that. I never forgot that. And if the answer is yes, then you don't wait until you have some mission field to go to, you start right now. You start right now. And as you serve in the little things, then watch what God will begin to do. It's not not for everybody. I mean, we all serve in various ways. And I'm not saying that, boy, you're not really serving unless you're a missionary or a pastor. Please, you know better than that. But I do want to challenge you 
uh, especially you young men. We need warriors. We need young men who will be young Timothys. They may be young, they may be timid, but oh my, what God can do. So just examine your heart to that end. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these very practical truths that emerge from Paul's life, his travel plans, and, and, and all that we examined here. Thank you so much for the opportunities that you give each of us for the purpose of evangelism and edification. But Lord, help us to take advantage of every opportunity. All of those that are within the sphere of our influence, Lord, may we have that kind of zeal and give us the courage to stand firm. So we thank you and we give you praise in all things for Jesus' sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.